Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is an industry update, what the wealth management landscape looks like today. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. Most advisors, whether they're well-entrenched and perfectly content with the status quo or hell-bent on making a move, want to understand how the industry landscape has evolved, where their firm fits into the whole context of the waterfall of possibilities, and how their firm compares and contrasts to others, especially when they're witnessing so much movement overall. Up until two years ago, we, Diamond Consultants, put together an annual white paper called The Landscape of the Industry. It represented a Herculean effort on our part, and within a day of publishing it, it became outdated. Why? Because that's how fast things in the wealth management industry are changing. Our white paper described the industry landscape as a continuum of options, buckets, or categories of firms and models where a financial advisor could choose to practice. We asked the reader to imagine a horizontal line where the left sat the private banks and wirehouses, the biggest firms, then moving right, the regionals, and then independence in all its many forms. We would describe the defining characteristics of each model, give examples of the firms within them, and then compare and contrast them all. But here's what happened. The waterfall of possibilities and the practice options that advisors could choose between exploded, and then literally exploded again. It seemed as though every day a new model was born, and it became virtually impossible for us to do justice to the new industry landscape without the task itself becoming a full-time job. So it occurred to me that I had never done a podcast episode specifically discussing the industry landscape, And that's my topic today. To answer the question, what are all the options available to quality advisors? What do they mean and where do they sit? I'm going to ask you to imagine that same horizontal line I mentioned earlier. Think of it as a continuum where the most restrictive and biggest banks and brokerage firms sit on the far left. And all the way on the other end, the fee-only RIA, all the way to the right. In between, sit many wonderful, worthy options and sub-options. Let me say, too, before I begin, that while to understand all of the options may seem more daunting and overwhelming than years past, optionality is actually an incredible positive. It means that you as an advisor are more likely today to find an option that best suits you, certainly more so than a decade ago where the choice would have been binary, mean either stay put 
or move to another like firm, meaning a move from Merrill to Morgan. Not in any way that that's a bad thing, but if you had a problem with the wirehouse model, you weren't much likely to solve for it by moving to yet another wirehouse. So optionality in the landscape has been a really good thing. But it's also that your clients win because you wouldn't move unless you found an option that allowed you to better serve them. That is one that's more than better enough. And I will mention that the concept of more than better enough is my threshold and the threshold that I use to help advisors evaluate whether a move is worth the hassle because a move is a hassle. The threshold or the litmus test for whether an opportunity is worthy of a move is, is it needle moving enough or more than better enough? So let me share some key points with you about each category or model. I'm going to get a little bit into the weeds here. So first is the private bank or bank brokerage model. Think JP Morgan Private Bank and Wells Fargo WBS Wealth Brokerage Services. This model, the banking model, provides a built-in referral mechanism which can drive growth, but they also tend to be the most restrictive and least entrepreneurial. The model offers the least amount of control for the advisor as well. And many who work in these models worry about being vulnerable to having their ever-growing book broken up to be distributed to less successful advisors. Many private banks pay no transition money and pay, like J.P. Morgan Private Bank, on a salary bonus comp model. Wells Bank model is actually a notable exception to that, and they do play aggressive recruiting deals. I think what we're saying, though, is is that it's a choice. There are some give-ups. While on the one hand, a bank model is a great way to grow a business because of a built-in referral mechanism, the downside is they're usually non-protocol, so employment agreements which contain enforceable restrictive covenants will govern the move. And secondly, bank assets are usually harder to move because the assets are more tied to the bank. The other thing is that the lack of portability or the perceived lack of portability is an issue oftentimes for the firms looking to recruit an advisor. So if a firm has a choice of recruiting an advisor coming from a traditional firm, a traditional model with the same size book of business that an advisor coming from the bank brokerage model has, the advisor coming from the traditional model will garner a much more aggressive deal with more of the deal paid upfront because there's less risk attached to it. Let's move secondarily to the wirehouses. Obviously, these are the most recognizable names in the space, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, UBS, and Wells Fargo. They have world-class platforms, outstanding technology, although there are definitely differences between each of those firms, and solid training ground for new advisors. And again, a training ground that they often sort of change the requirements for year by year. All offer strong recruiting packages, although Merrill is largely out of the recruiting game by choice for now, and UBS and Morgan have been recruiting much more selectively. These firms tend to be bureaucratic, and many wirehouse advisors complain that the lack of freedom, flexibility, and control is because of an advisor force of anywhere between 8 and 15,000 or so 
forces the firm to manage to the lowest common denominator. That said, the wirehouses are familiar. They're solid brand names. They have scale. So they're constantly investing in and innovating in technology and platform where it matters. And for an advisor that's used to practicing in a plug and play environment, it's an environment that will feel very familiar and comfortable, all in one place comfortable. Then we move, again, we're on that horizontal line or continuum, so we're moving a little further to the right, and we get to the regional firms. The regional firms were once really considered the also-rans in the wealth management space. They just couldn't quite keep up. Their leaders were just not quite up to the par of their wirehouse colleagues. Their technology was subpar. Their platform was just a little bit less But in the last number of years, these firms have elevated themselves exponentially and really leveled the playing field because wisely, they saw the opportunity as they began to watch more and more advisors become disenfranchised with the wirehouse world, many of whom finding the advisors, that is, that independence was a bridge too far. Those advisors, many of them wanted a best of both worlds or an in-between. And the regional firms very wisely saw an opportunity to capture top advisor talent, perhaps for the first time. So they've hired top leaders from the wirehouses, built modern technology, and as a result, have been crushing it in the race for top talent. So think Raymond James, RBC, Stiefel Nicholas in this category. These firms are ideal for the advisor who values greater flexibility and less bureaucracy, but finds independence, again, a bridge too far. They have many fewer advisors and less layers of management than their wirehouse counterparts and offer moderate to strong transition deals. Those deals, I should say, are firm by firm. So a firm like Raymond James has a policy. They've never, ever been the top payer in the market, they really differentiate themselves on deal. And advisors love them because of the multi-channel association model. I can join as part of the private client group and slide into independence, whether that be independent broker-dealer model or RIA model at any time. What is the cost for some more of that freedom is a lesser deal. With that said, a firm like RBC is a regional firm with many few advisors and more accessibility to senior management, less layers of management, but also paying deals that are pretty competitive with the wirehouses. Next, we come to the boutique firms. And this is the category that's changed the most. In the olden days, not too distant past, the boutique firms were considered firms like Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Credit Suisse, and Deutsche Bank, until they weren't anymore. Those were the firms where high net worth focused advisors who wanted to work in an environment with hundreds of advisors as opposed to thousands flocked. And when those firms, the ones I just named, went away, it left a hole in the landscape. But very, very smart leaders filled that gap. And those boutique firms have been replaced by the likes of Rockefeller Capital Management, First Republic Wealth Management, William Blair, and Jeffries, to name a few. 
So let me focus for a moment just on Rockefeller and First Republic. And doing so because they too are crushing it. Every day we read about a multi-billion dollar team joining First Republic and Rockefeller. Boutique firms, because they have under 100 teams. Boutique firms, because they are about flat organizational structures. They both pay very aggressive transition deals. They have a community of like-minded, ultra-high net worth-focused advisors and firms that are gaining real traction in the last number of years. Generally, though, boutique firms are characterized as having fewer advisors, flatter organizations, meaning less layers of management, and great access to senior leadership. But they have limited geographic footprints. So they're typically limited to NFL cities or to the coasts. First Republic, based in San Francisco, has offices in all over New York City and all over California and in Palm Beach, Florida, but not a whole lot in between. Rockefeller, based in New York, is opening offices selectively, but typically in big cities and major markets. Again, these firms focus on high net worth and ultra high net worth clients. There are often synergies between wealth management and other areas of the firm. In fact, at a model like First Republic, one of the reasons they're getting so much traction is because of a tremendous referral mechanism and a very real one between the bank side and the wealth management side. Again, many of them paying strong transition deals depending on the firm. First Republic and Rockefeller really absolutely as aggressive as the biggest and best of firms. Then we come to independence. And while independence years ago was something we painted with a broad brush, today independence means literally a hundred different models. And what it is essentially is a broad brush term for the part of the industry landscape that has expanded the most. It's characterized by control over one's P&L and advisor's P&L or bottom line with choice about how much support the advisor wants. So the categories would start out in independence with independent broker-dealer. And here, think Wells Fargo Finet, which is the independent broker-dealer arm of Wells Fargo. Think LPL. Think Commonwealth and Cambridge, two of the more boutique independent broker-dealers. These firms are about independence, but with strong back office support. They pay nice transition money. Wells Fargo, Finet, and LPL pay much more than Commonwealth and Cambridge, but still decent amounts of transition money depending upon the broker-dealer. This model is ideal for somebody who wants independence, but either doesn't have a ton of fee-based business or likes the idea of a more supported version of independence. Then we get to the RIA space. Essentially, the RIA, fee-only RIA, where an advisor gives up his broker-dealer license, or the hybrid RIA, the more popular category. The RIA space is about total control, open architecture to what we call access to the whole of market. W-H-O-L-E of market. While most advisors who practice as employees believe that they have access to open architecture, many advisors, particularly those that service an 
ultra high net worth client base say that when it comes to access to private investments or certain categories of alternative investments, that they feel limited. The RIA space allows an advisor to shop the street and create competition for price and service for virtually anything from lending to structured products, to alternative investments, to trusts and estate capabilities, to insurance and everything in between. It's also for the advisor who really wants to build an enterprise and eventually monetize his business for top dollar. And custody is with an institutional custodian, the likes of a Pershing, Bank of New York Pershing, Fidelity, Schwab, TD. But because in this space, the RIA space that is, the advisor is responsible for his or her own compliance and oversight, many prefer a category called supported independence. So this is for the advisor that wants to be independent, but does not want to have to deal with all of the minutiae, the middle office and back office work that go along with running an independent business. I contrast this to the version of supported independence under independent broker-dealer, and it's an important distinction. In the independent broker-dealer world, typically the advisor is independent, but it is the broker-dealer that manages a large portion of the middle office and back office work in return for a tariff to the broker-dealer And limitations, meaning an advisor is only really able to access the inventory of products and services that the broker-dealer makes available to them. But in the last number of years, because many advisors like the idea of being an RIA and having maximum control over their enterprise value, but don't want to work under a broker-dealer, the concept or the category of supported independence has taken off more than any other. Think Dynasty Financial Partners, think Sanctuary Wealth Partners and Kestra Private Wealth Services, think LPL and their new premium model, think Steward Partners. These are all various versions of supported independence. We actually did a whole episode on the topic of supported independence in the series, and you'll find a link to it on this episode's page on our website. But let me give a little bit of color. So Dynasty Financial Partners is a firm where an advisor has his own ADV, his own RIA. It's a turnkey solution where the advisor retains 100% of equity and control over the business. It offers them access to creative capital solutions and succession solutions as well. Then we come to Sanctuary Wealth Partners and Kestra Private Wealth Services. These are models of supported independence where an advisor has, it sits on their corporate ADV. Both firms own broker-dealers. They custody third party, but Sanctuary is multi-custody and Kestra custodies with Fidelity. Both will find office space and set up businesses. Both provide nice transition money. So it's a level of a little more support than dynasty offers, but the payout, the net payout under a dynasty model will be higher. LPL wanted in on the supported independence model and so launched what they called LPL Premium. It's an independent broker-dealer model of supported independence, which is self-clearing under the LPL model, 
and offers very aggressive transition money. They're hitting it hard with top wirehouse advisors and beginning to gain some real traction, even though it's relatively new. And then we get to Steward Partners, which really has been making a splash of late. They are a quasi-independent model where the advisors are W-2 employees, but sitting under the Raymond James umbrella. It's a partnership model, and they have had real success lately because of the combination between quasi-independence, some nice deal money, a partnership, and the Raymond James name. So generally speaking, on that continuum, as you move from left to right, the more freedom, flexibility, and control an advisor wants, the more likely he is to seek models that are closer to independence. For those that want an all-under-one-roof traditional firm, like the wirehouses and regionals, they're likely to stay there. While we no longer publish the landscape white paper, and I know that there are many of our listeners who have asked for it, we do have an updated Landscape at a Glance, which is a one-sheeter that provides a quick overview of this continuum, as I've described it. You'll find a link to it on this episode page on our website, as well as on our tools and resources page. Or please feel free to email me at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com or text me, as I'm working from home these days, at 973 476 8578. I'm looking forward to some of the conversations we have coming up as well as sharing more of these industry updates. So I thank you today for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. As always, feel free to email or call me. I can be reached by cell these days at 973 973- 476-8578 or always by email. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. A special thanks to advisorhub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.